You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. How are you holding up through this crazy election period? (laughs) (laughs) Siri, it's nice of you to ask. (laughs) That was actually Alexa. Oh, (laughs) yeah, you got to get it right, right? You got to know who's tracking you. We're doing all right, you know, just trying to go into robot mode and take the emotions out of it and be patient. I know it's been hard, though. It's been a long three days glued to the television. We've had the TV on more in the house than ever before. It's kind of like confusing the children a little bit. <laughs> yeah. They kept on asking, like, why don't we not know who's winning yet? So it's been a, an interesting last three days. And it seems that we might have a still an interesting weekend coming. So Yeah, I think the living rooms are starting to look like airports. <laughs> the news is just constantly playing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I figured I would let Alexa kick us off today because we're going to be talking about her and other AI tracking algorithms today. So I figured it would be appropriate. Yes, I would agree. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't we just jump straight in? So today we're going to be talking about ad tracking and how marketers can think about us. And we know that our audience is pretty well versed in the marketing space. So we're not going to go into the technicalities of how it works from a tracking perspective because we're just assuming that You guys already know that, and we don't want to bore you with stuff you already know. We're going to be tackling it more from how we should be thinking about it as marketers. You know, usually on the Marketing Rescue podcast, we talk about failures and spectacular brand comebacks and marketing comebacks, where this is more talking about ad tracking and what it means to marketers. And this is very similar to the episode we did on marketing to children. And we just felt that it's important to have this discussion, but it doesn't necessarily fall into a marketing rescue podcast episode. And this is a pretty complex topic. So we're going to be dividing it into two parts, part one and then part two. Let's get started. So at this point in the digital age, we pretty much all ask ourselves, is my device listening to me? I nearly have that conversation with my wife, Megan, on a monthly basis when we debate who's listening to us and how the data is being Mm. used. And if so, it's probably because you had these conversations about this specific thing, or maybe you just mentioned it offhandedly only to then start seeing ads served to you. The example that kind of like kicked this off in South Africa, there's something called biltong, which is a version of like dried meat, like jerky basically, but it's a very traditional South African thing. And I think we were once on a all company agency Zoom meeting and we talked about biltong while we were waiting for people to come up. And a lot of people actually saw biltong ads being served to them on Amazon and it freaked out a lot of people. And that's kind of like the premise of why we thought we would put this together for you guys today and and just explain how we should be thinking about this as marketers. You know, some people think occurrences like this are creepy, but some think it's kind of cool and intuitive. And I kind of like fall in the latter bucket there. I don't really feel that devices listening to me is a infringement on my privacy, but my wife feels that it is. So I think people fall within that spectrum. I think it's a convenience because the more relevant information that gets served to me, it's better for me, right? Versus just like random ads and content. But 
what is it? Is it bad? Is it good? And how should we be thinking about it if we start planning a campaign for our clients? And in case if you don't really know, it's ad tracking, obviously, that we're talking about. And it's the most significant change that's happening in recent marketing technology. It is a pretty big deal and it's a billion dollar industry. Yeah, it's huge. And with the advent of ad tracking, marketers have been able to do something they've been really just trying to do for decades, right? If you think about the entire historical context of marketing and advertising, making sure that the ads you create only show for the people that you want to see them is a pretty big deal, obviously. I mean, that's one of the basics of marketing is know your target audience and speak directly to them. So early advertisers primarily accomplish that by blanketing the market with ads. It's just kind of this like shotgun approach and wide nets. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully you'll catch the right people, but there was no way to know really whether the person who is watching going way back in time to Ed Sullivan's show that night actually sat through your ad, how they felt about it. Did they take action based on it? You know, maybe they get up to go grab a beer or go to the bathroom or whatever else. Right. And you just don't know that. So these things would mean that sometimes you pay for an impression that doesn't actually happen or that brings you no volume or people change the channel with commercials or they record and then fast forward back when like TiVo and DVR first came out and you could skip the commercials was like the big thing. But really, there was never any way to know for sure until, of course, digital advertising and you start to see ad tracking come into the picture and just totally change the game. Yeah, so let's have a very brief discussion about what ad tracking is, just for the off chance that a listener might not be versed from a technical standpoint. But before describing how ad tracking has changed marketing, it might be helpful to know what it is and how, other than it's sometimes creepy, or it can also be convenient. Like I said, it gives you the relevant content. And you ask yourself, is my device listening to me? So if you're unfamiliar with ad tracking, all you really need to know is basically just two things. It's cookies and ad pixels. It's a digital footprint that gets stored on a site that tracks you as you navigate to other pieces of content. And then it serves you content based on your history on a page, which keywords brought you there, which video you watched, which button you pressed. And it basically just puts your behavior inside of a cookie, which is a digital tracking text file, for lack of a better word, that basically just tracks your information and how you've navigated through the web. And an ad pixel links the behavior that the cookie records directly to your social media pages, especially to Facebook. So if we do Facebook buys, as you and I very well know, we can be very specific in selecting our audiences, right? And that's the core business of Facebook and why they're so successful because we can be from a zip code, from an income, behaviors, the types of things people like. So we can be very, very specific of how to serve somebody an ad. And that's because of the Facebook pixel that exists. So all that means is that ad pixels uses cookies to give an extra layer of personalization to social media and to other different websites. And this is beneficial because it allows advertisers to, in some sense, know you better from tracking your behavior. Yeah. And that also means that before all of that, there was essentially no way for advertisers to get to know you better via 
real-time interaction with the ads unless you're doing some sort of focus group or that kind of a thing. But again, that's kind of a limited situation. It's not an ongoing case file, so to speak, (laughs) you know, or dossier that they're kind of creating on you. And that means that for decades, they had no idea whether or not the ads they bought actually really did their job besides measuring some of the softer metrics that kind of took time to see play out. Like, did sales go up over the next quarter after we ran this campaign? And in which geographical areas and those types of things. So there was a lot more of correlation that allowed you to understand success or failure, but not a lot of like direct one-to-one connection. So of course that all changed. And with ad tracking, not only were advertisers able to tell when someone clicked on any specific ad, which of course led to PPC or, or CPC advertising where you only pay when someone clicks on the ad, but they were able to show those ads only to the people who are most likely to be interested in them, which is again now a big change. Yeah, so paid search advertising meant ads would only be shown to people who search for something relevant to that ad, or we like to call them like hand raisers, right? People actively looking for content. And remarketing means that we can serve them an ad from a site that they've previously visited. And for advertisers, these changes were actually a massive, just a dream, right? Because we can follow people around on the internet. We have much more relevant information of who they are and where they came from. And we can retarget them. So the changes meant greater targeting effectiveness and also saving of money because we didn't have to cast such a wide net like you just talked about. We can be very specific in firing like laser beams to specific people on specific IP addresses versus throwing a massive CPM by and just trying to get as many clicks as possible. Because a lot of those clicks are irrelevant and they're not specific to the ad that we're trying to serve the user, which then results into saving money from a marketing buy perspective. So more specific reporting also enabled marketers to not only know what their ads were doing, but allowing them to test ad variants, right? To make sure that the most effective image, headline, and keywords are being used. So ad tracking is not only a money saver for marketers, but it also creates a more direct line between companies and their consumers. Yeah. And for the consumers, that, of course, as we've talked about, means, you you know, you don't have to see a bunch of irrelevant ads, at least to an extent, not to the extent that you would have typically been exposed to in the past. And so, I mean, you can make the argument if ads are going to be integrated into your everyday life to the point of just being unavoidable, which is a reality-based fact, they might as well be somewhat enjoyable or relatable or the very least have some sort of relevancy to the types of things that you're actually interested in. And ad tracking, of course, makes all that possible. So from a theoretical perspective, the idea is it creates a better user experience for the consumer of ads. It creates a better, more efficient experience for people who are deploying ads and optimizing their ad buys. And so it should just be a thing where everything gets better. We have better access to the things that we want. Marketing ROI significantly improves. And off we go, right? We make it to a better future. You're setting something up here. <laughs> Something's telling me you're going <laughs> to, but wait. <laughs> yes. Well, so what happens is that once existing ad targeting 
was combined with these really deep social media profiles and the amount of data that's collected over time on individuals that can really segment people into specific behaviors and affinities towards all kinds of different preferences, whether it be political, religious, socioeconomic, interest categories, whatever the case may be, the level of micro-targeting that's available is just at a level that we've never seen before and have really started to experience collectively as a nation and as a world over the past four to five years. And so micro-targeting, deep social profiling, you know, these kinds of things kind of sound like tinfoil hat conspiracy theory kind of stuff. But when you really consider that in relation to that more direct line between companies and consumers, those phrases, I think, indicate that because of ad tracking, consumers are less of a part of a general kind of faceless group of people and are more of an individual than marketing audiences have really had to deal with before. So before you kind of create these personas that are representative of a large swath of a target audience that you have to try to categorize as best you can into a few key categories or types of which there's really very little acknowledgement of the massive diversity within a specific target audience. And there's very little feedback on that persona. So the persona gets developed and the media buy gets developed and then it gets implemented and then the persona gets put away. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It gets updated on a planning session once a year where it's just not as accurate as what it can be. Right. And so there's just so much individuality that the capability from a communications perspective, even though that capability exists within the marketing industry currently, it is not at all being leveraged to the full extent of its capability in terms of one-to-one -one communication and personalization. Now, part of that is, is that there's a lot of reasons why from both a logistical perspective in terms of just the sheer amount of effort that it takes to execute <laughs> at a more personalized level, the deeper and more granular you get in terms of the number of variations of messages and creative and all of those types of things, that obviously takes more effort, expense, et cetera. And there are also a lot of legal considerations and ethical considerations that you have to take into account. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. Right. And so there's a lot of rules that are being constructed both governmentally and legislatively, as well as internal processes at companies to try to set guidelines and boundaries for how to ethically push the envelope as it relates to targeting. Yeah. And these rules that you're talking about are set by companies. And maybe what exactly do Alexa, Siri, or Google Home gather from us as they listen should be the question. And ad tracking inspires a lot of questions, and we don't blame you. If you don't understand the legalities of this and the technical side of this, then those are just questions, and I think a lot of people have them. Sources show that when you're using voice search, particularly with Google Home, Google can actually record and store every word that you say to it. And Siri does the same. Apple has said that every voice query ever given to Siri is cataloged and archived. Some say this might make users reconsider yelling at her or asking her to tell dirty jokes. 
where others can disagree and highly recommend the latter, like myself. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it is kind of fun, actually. Every couple of months, I go into the Alexa search history and especially see what my kids have been asking Alexa, because yeah. you just find some stuff that's pure comedy gold. Yeah, we did that the <laughs> other day, and our four-year-old asked, why did Jesus make us? Mm. And Emerson asked, can Hulk pick up our house? Oh, see, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> these are the things that's swirling around in their heads. Yeah, and so the fine print for most of these services is that once you activate it, whether by voice or by clicking on the microphone icon and, you know, accept the terms of services, all that kind of stuff, you hold down the home button on your iPhone, you agree for your voice command to be transcribed and stored word for word, usually in both text and audio, and in some cases, even if you delete it from your account, that record is still on their servers, even though it's been deleted from your specific account right. under certain circumstances. There are circumstances where you can have it completely removed, but usually that's an active process where you have to make a specific request in writing via a specific process that they outline in their privacy policy. Mm-hmm. Which we all read when we get new phones. It is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it, like how many privacy policies you've just scrolled down and clicked OK yeah. to. Just the sheer number of legal documents that people have agreed to without reading that everyone does is kind of mind-blowing. Well, that's the stance of the tech companies. They say you accept this or just don't use the service. So they're not forcing you to use right. the service. They're not forcing you to have a device that records every word in your house. You bought the Alexa, you bought the Google Home, and then you accepted right. their privacy policy. Right, exactly. So you've consented to your data being transcribed and stored. We all know what the deal is, to your point, when we accept those privacy policies. And besides the fact that Google claims that only two-tenths of a percent of all audio snippets end up being listened to and analyzed by the company's reviewers. And supposedly you can delete your voice search history manually or automatically after a specific period of time. There are all these laws that control the transcribing, storing, and selling of consumer data in the US. There's this patchwork of federal state regulations that attempt to protect people's privacy and online data. I like how you just said attempts to protect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that. After all of that, it's just attempts. Yeah. Meaning that it's inconsistent. You can always interpret the law differently, and various companies do that in different ways. There are many instances of companies breaking the law yeah. and, of course, being fined, and that's an after-the-fact penalty, right? We talk about that a lot. That's like just part of doing their business. They budget for that. They budget for their fines in the yearly plan because it's such a small amount out of their top line that goes to that, and it's just the right to play for them. Yes. So the question is, is everyone has the right to guarantee their privacy, but how many of us actually truly care to really do that? And are these devices truly listening to you all the time? So we know that it's inconsistent, the implementation and the safeguards and the protections, and we know that we can't really peek under the hood to Google servers to see what's really truly being stored there yeah. versus what they tell the public, right? I mean, you can ask yourself, are my devices listening to me? And I think we've established that the answer is yes, but I don't think it's really in the way that most people think. You know, voice-activated devices like Alexa and Google Home 
are listening. And if you believe them, they say that they're only listening for when you speak to activate them and that they're not storing or selling the data from your everyday conversations. But even people without voice-activated devices have had experiences of talking about something with a friend with no Alexa or Google Home anywhere to be found in their home. And then they start seeing ads serve to them for precisely that thing. So is your iPhone listening to you or your Android phone storing these conversations? Apple says no, categorically. But regardless of whether you believe that or not, the fact is that Apple, Facebook, and Google, they don't really need to listen to your conversation to serve these ads to you. You know, when you go out and you buy a new car and then for like the next few weeks, all you see is that car on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just all over the place. So in psychology, that's an actual phenomenon called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And so basically what that just says is that your subconscious has to process so much information. You're constantly processing. Think about when you drive down the road, how many cars you see on the road. It's a deluge of information. Yeah, that you can navigate through. Right. Your brain has to decide what to keep, what to dump. And so these devices work in a very similar way. They constantly have to decide what to keep, what to dump, because the bandwidth and the pipes just aren't there to be able to take all of that information in constantly, store it, process it, work with it. And that's why your brain largely ignores the hordes of varying models and makes of cars as you drive down the highway until you're putting a lot of active focus into that. And then you start to see this thing called the frequency illusion which is it seems like it's so much more frequent, but it's just that your brain has prioritized that information because it needed to really be aware and thinking of it so that you make a good decision when you purchase a car, right? And your brain kind of like knows that. And so then it prioritizes its resources in that direction. So that might sound a little bit intense. (laughs) And some people, again, will say this is all tinfoil hat stuff. And there are certain elements of it that I think people can get into conspiracy theories without any evidence. But the things that I think we're focusing on today are things that have been borne out with evidence. And you got to remember, whether you're on Google, Facebook, Amazon, Zoom, whatever the case might be, every single action you take is being tracked. You know, every post, every like, every click, page visit, comment, et cetera, all that data is being taken and combined with all of the information that you have given, you've provided, Mm -hmm. and they're just like this frequency illusion. There are ways to kind of craft that and hone that into particular profiles. And that's actually kind of what tracking tries to do is make sense of all of the noise to come to consistent patterns of behavior or interest and create a type of an affinity profile on you. And so... Armed with this knowledge, the technology builds out a complete profile of who you are. And so the algorithms are so good at this that it seems like they're listening to us. So a lot of times what happens is they already know what you're looking for because they know what you've been looking for. It doesn't matter that you had that conversation with your friend the other day. If we talk about weightlifting equipment and then we go and see an ad for weightlifting equipment, that's no shock because we both search and research for weightlifting equipment 
equipment and read about weightlifting programs and methodologies all day, every day, right? <laughs> so that's not really like a surprise. And at the end of the day, the goal of the algorithms is simply just to match advertisements with people. So no, in most cases, they're not violating privacy agreements when companies do this, but we voluntarily give so much information about ourselves that we're getting to a point where Google doesn't need to listen to us. Amazon doesn't even need to listen to us. They already know, <laughs> like they, right. they know what your interests are based on 10 years of Amazon purchase behavior. And speaking of Google, did you know that they pay Apple $10 billion to keep Google as the default search engine in Safari, in Apple's Safari browser? <laughs> $10 billion. And you can ask why, why do they do this? Because the data they collect from those searches and the money they make off that data, because Google.com is, as we know, not just a search engine anymore, it's a massive advertising platform. And Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Zoom are not non-profits, they are profit-oriented companies, and the data is where the money is. When you start to think about the companies in that light, then you begin to see how data mining and ad tracking is not just a feature of these businesses, it is the business, it is the thing that they do. So we talk about being freaked out about data collection, but if we remove that, these companies don't exist. Their entire business model is based around data that they sell and matching a customer and a brand or a customer and a product to their most effective way. And understanding that, especially if you're a marketer, puts you in an advantage in creating effective episodic marketing strategies. What I mean by episodic is when we do a paid search buy or a Facebook buy, it runs and it creates results as we have it running, as the money is being casted, so to speak, as the campaign is live. But as soon as you pull back your marketing spend, the results goes down. So it's like, it's very episodic. It's not an evergreen strategy. And I think that is one of the fundamental flaws with what we're talking about, that it doesn't really build a long-term relationship between you and a brand. It's like quick hit episodic marketing strategies. And as far as benefits in ad tracking are concerned, it seems for the most part to be a two-way street. Right. So if you're a consumer, ad tracking is an advantage because the way it makes the internet is big, super content heavy thing. Thing. Yes. Thing. Absolute deluge of information. It makes the enormity and infinite nature of the internet seem a bit smaller, a bit more personalized, easier to navigate. And for a more specific example of how consumers benefit, not just from ad tracking, but devices with ears that are perpetually on, devices like Alexa can now detect and send an alert to your phone if it hears the sound of smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, or even glass breaking. Yeah. So there are a lot of practical benefits, you know, like this home automation. There's a ton of practical benefits combined with the individualization that advertisers are able to achieve, you know, with micro-targeting and social profiling. So yeah, it does make our lives easier. It makes our lives more efficient. It helps us accomplish tasks more smoothly in our everyday lives. But with the ambiguity that still exists around who's capturing what, how much they're capturing, it makes sense that there should still be concerns mm. about privacy, right? Like 
those are legitimate concerns. There is a trade-off between convenience and privacy. Yeah, and because while we know the answer to are my devices listening to me is yes, and there are stops in place to make sure that they do it legally, that doesn't necessarily answer the question as to whether or not companies really are following the rules. And as you can tell, this is a really big topic. So we're actually going to take a break here and we're going to do the second episode next week. And in that episode, we'll be talking about examples of privacy violations, which I think is important to highlight, where marketers get it wrong when it comes to ad tracking. And then lastly, after all that, what's important at the end of the day? So be sure to join us on part two here on the Marketing Rescue Podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.